All right, well, uh, good morning, church. Good to see you. And I'm um, just going to kick things off with a very quick question this morning for you to uh, talk about with someone that you might be sitting beside. The question is this. Have you ever um, learnt or played a musical instrument? Now, we can go way, way back here. It doesn't have to be recent. It can be, you know, in times gone past and in deep, dark history. So talk about that with someone that you're sitting beside and be honest about how you were, particularly in the first few weeks or months of you learning that instrument, okay? All, all good? All right, you got 30 seconds. Go. Hey? Yeah, DJ. Okay, all right, um, anybody want to share uh, some of their, their past history? Did they learn a musical instrument, Lindley? Well, I've been married to this man yeah. for a number of years now, and, and I did not know that he was musical. He brought a kazoo, because he was a brother who learned to play. So a kazoo. A kazoo. Yeah, all right, add that to the church band. <laughs> Yep, okay, that's cool. Anybody else have any amazing revelations from people they know or didn't know? Yep. I did not know, but my wife played piano, which is a Well, there you go, see? This is what we hear about at church, you know, for you to find out new stuff. Okay, and were you good at piano, Louise? Okay. <laughs> did you ever have to do, like, a performance for... No, you were just like, play it, boom, done. Okay. Did anybody else have to do a, um, a performance, whether it was for an exam or whether it was for a crowd or something? Yeah? So cello was left. Okay. Yeah. Tough, tough, tough. Uh, Glenis, did you or someone? Oh, Linda? Right. And how was that? Terrible. I hear you, I hear you, you know, when you practice uh, by yourself and zone around, you kind of muck it up, I uh, know you do it well, and then when you've got to do it in front of everybody else, you muck it up. Which brings me to my next point, this may surprise you, but I've actually been learning um, a new instrument lately, and it is, it is the violin. <clears throat> so um, Daphne's very kindly let me borrow her violin, and I'm going to give you my debut performance. I've been mean, practicing and practicing and practicing, and um, this is the moment, I think, to reveal where I'm at with you. So, um, Daphne, if that's okay with you. Yeah, she's... It's a, oh, actually. The only man that's ever had her hands on a violin, better not forget the music. Whew. I mean, that's quite a reputation to live up to, so um, we've just chosen something easy. It's uh, one of the Andrew Lloyd Webber classics, <laughs> Phantom of the Opera. Now, you may recognise this. Um, when I get into position, we'll probably need to just move that out of the way. So, uh, it is 
tricky, this whole violin business, but I'm pretty confident you'll be something. It's, it's nerve-wracking doing your debut performance in front of all these people. Okay. Just... Oh, yeah, it's working. Good, good, good. Okay, here we go. I didn't expect a clap. <laughs> um, uh, no, no, no. Okay, well, I was sensing you were happy that it's finished, that's why you clapped. Um, I would like to, thankfully for you, uh, we have a violin virtuoso in the room who is going to show us how it's really supposed to be played, so definitely. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> You're right, they're deaf. Bring it a bit closer. Is that better? Take a bow, Daphne. That was pretty amazing. Now, I think we could probably all agree that um, I did not do a particularly great job. Um, and I think if you heard me play that, you'd be forgiven for thinking that Andrew Lloyd Webber didn't know how to compose music, right? That he was clearly uh, no idea how to compose a song, but... With Daphne coming along to play the song as it was written, as it was meant to be, thankfully we can see that actually the problem isn't so much with the composer, it's with the performer. And I was a terrible performer at the violin. But Daphne played that tune as it was meant to be. And I think that actually illustrates the relationship between the Christian church and Jesus Christ for the last 2,000 years. So let me explain, because... In, in his words and in his actions, Jesus composed a beautiful tune. He, he made a, a melody of how things were meant to be. But in our words, in our actions, Christians un, have not consistently performed that tune particularly well. So down through the centuries, uh, some Christians have been off-key a little bit. Some Christians have had slightly bad timing. Some Christians have been out of tune. Others have been playing a completely different song, a song that Jesus never, ever composed. And so I think that's why, in one sense, it is unfair to judge the Christian faith based solely on the performance of Christians. Now, before you get all sort of angry and the knives come out and stuff, this is, this is not some sort of feeble excuse to justify a lot of horrible events 
uh, from the past. Okay? I'm not trying to sweep the, the failings of Christians under the rug. Not, not at all. In fact, in the coming weeks in this series, we're going to be peeling back some really ugly stuff. We're going to take an honest look and expose some of that religious abuse and corruption for the evil that, that it is. But I think if we're going to make a fair assessment of the Christian faith, we need to look at the composer before we look at the performers. And I think that the Christian church has been at its best when it is in tune with Jesus. When Christians have played that melody of Jesus, they have, they have added value to the world in countless ways. Christians have shed light, given goodness, brought beauty, taught truth, and our world has been positively transformed. But when Christians have been out of tune with Jesus, that's when things have gone really, really bad. Under the Christian banner, there has been bigotry and hatred and violence and abuse. It's all been perpetrated. And, and not only is that terrible and, and horrible, but it actually is also a betrayal of the virtues and the values that Jesus taught. And you know what? People are smart. They can smell hypocrisy a mile away. And actually, unfortunately, it's those negative actions which seem to have the biggest influence on our society when it comes to the Christian faith. Here's just uh, some examples of some headlines from stuff in the last two months. Destiny Church Charities back under the government microscope, okay, back in December. Uh, early in January, a row in Christchurch over unlawful church events. Uh, last week, the Catholic Church reveals huge abuse stats. And this week, a few days ago, Auckland Church leaders facing charges of tax fraud. Now, those headlines end up feeding the popular view that, that the, Christ, the Christian faith is maybe uh, at best irrelevant and possibly even harmful to our world. And that's actually a really common feeling in New Zealand. So uh, a couple of years ago, 2018, there was a nationwide survey done called the Faith and Belief Survey. And one of those questions in the survey asked people, what are their top five issues with Christianity? What are the top five hang-ups that they have? What are the things that they really don't like about the Christian faith? This is what they are. This is what people responded back. Coming in at number five, 42% of people said issues around money. That's their, one of their big hang-ups with the Christian faith. Number four, judging others. 48% of people said that's a big issue with Christianity. Now, positions three and two are, are, are tied equal. They're both at 49%. Religious wars, so looking back at the, the history and the violence and the bloodshed, and hypocrisy uh, were two pretty significant. Almost half of people thought that was a big issue. But the top issue that people have with the Christian faith, according to that survey, is this, church abuse, 62%. I think we're seeing that unfold in the media and that uh, Royal Commission of Inquiry as that kind of unfolds. Now, chances are you have family members, maybe friends, maybe workmates who have the same hang-ups with Christianity. And when you look at the headlines, do you really blame them? For 2,000 years, Christians have had the chance to practice the tune of Jesus and it's clear that we haven't always played that melody as it was meant to be. So, that's why I'm really excited over the uh, next few weeks, particularly today we're diving into this new teaching series, both at Morning Church and Night Church, 
And we've simply called it Better and Worse, how the Christian church is better and worse than you've ever imagined. And so we're going to do some, some teaching, some live teaching, but also some short uh, video documentaries, and we're going to peel back some of the layers and have a really honest look at the good, the bad, and the ugly of 2,000 years of Christian history. And I probably need to tell you like a little bit of a, a caveat, a little bit of a warning. You might find some things quite surprising and maybe quite shocking. Uh, you'll probably discover that Christians have undeniably done some terrible things. Oppression, corruption, persecution, exploitation, they've all been carried out under the banner of Christianity. But I also hope that you'll be inspired, that you'll discover that there has been much good done under the banner of Christianity. That Christians have cared for the poor and the marginalised. They have established schools and hospitals and orphanages and charities, and Christians have valued people from all ages and stages, from all walks of life. And actually, those Christian principles of care and compassion have influenced our world far more than we actually realise. There's a, a British historian, a guy called Tom Holland. He was, a, he was an atheist when he wrote this, but this is what he put uh, several years ago. Today, even as belief in God fades across the West, the countries that were once collectively known as Christendom continue to bear the stamp of the two millennia old revolution that Christianity represents. And so Tom Holland and a bunch of other historians argue that whether we realize it or not, many of the values that we take for granted in Western society have their roots in the Christian teachings of Jesus. Virtues like equality, liberty, morality, humility, and generosity, they were all expressed, they were all enhanced, and they were all extended through the teachings of Jesus. But there's, there's one concept which is really foundational, perhaps one teaching of Jesus that shaped our world more than any other. It's, it's an idea that informs and influences how people interact. And it's this idea. It's called the Imago Dei in Latin, or in English, the image of God. Now, if you're familiar with Christian doctrine, you might have heard that phrase before, and, and its origins can be traced back to the beginning of history, to the story of creation, where the opening pages of the Bible introduce this concept and kind of really set the tone for how it's to be understood. So I'm going to read uh, to you, with you, from one of the first, or from the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter one. You're welcome to follow along if you want to. Otherwise, I'll put it up on the screen. But this is what we read. Uh, then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Oh, you might be familiar with that, okay? It's reasonably well known. And there's actually a really lot to unpack in that, so I'm just going to very simply highlight three key truths that have been embedded in this concept of the Imago Dei. And the first one is this, that, that God gives authority. He, he imparts something of himself to the first people. God gives them a, a special direction to, to have dominion over creation, to, to have authority and influence in the world. Now, the ancient people, 
that was a really easy concept for them to understand. So in Egyptian times, during those Egyptian empires, they believed that the pharaoh was the image of a god and that there was this divinely organized hierarchy that at the very top, with ultimate authority, was the pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And he was the representative of the gods on earth. But for the Jewish and the Christian understanding of this idea, they took it far, far further. According to Genesis Everyone is created in the image of God. Every man, every woman, every child, regardless of class or color or culture or creed, everyone is made in the image of God. Now, this is revolutionary. This brought about equality for every person. And this equalized value meant that you didn't have to be a pharaoh to have authority and to be valuable, that everyone had equal worth. Everyone was created in the image of God. There's a guy called um, Professor Jonathan Sachs. He's uh, been a a chief rabbi in uh, the UK for about 20 years, and he put it like this. In the ancient world, it was rulers, kings, emperors, and pharaohs who were held to be in the image of God. What Genesis is saying is that we are all royalty. We each have equal dignity in the kingdom of faith under the sovereignty of God. And so that emphasis on equal dignity dignity really contrasted with those ancient attitudes. So in ancient times, the value of a person was based on their performance and their productivity. So if you had a limited capacity, maybe you were too old or or too young, maybe you were sick or weak, maybe you had physical or intellectual disabilities, you you were generally considered pretty worthless. Now you might be thinking, hang on a second, in our modern world, we value people based on their productivity and their performance. Maybe in the workplace or your family, you know, that's sort of uh, probably a side effect of our consumer culture. But in the Jewish and the Christian concept of this image of God, everyone had immeasurable worth and therefore dignity because they were related to the Creator. So just like every child inherently relates to their parents, Every person is related to God because they're created in his image. And the intrinsic worth is not on what they can do or who they are, but because they are a child of God. They are made in the image of God. They are loved by God. So I think that's that's quite a kind of significant concept. We're actually going to show you a a short video clip which just explains it in a little bit more detail, and then I'm going to talk about the impact of this idea on our world. All good? Okay. For most of us today, every life is precious, valuable in its own right. Not so in ancient times. In the Greco-Roman world, the world in which Christianity first emerged, it was not uncommon to find babies discarded like rubbish on the dumps outside the city. As a parent, it's really difficult to imagine someone leaving their newborn in a public place like the local rubbish dump. Some of the babies would have been picked up by other parents looking for another child or a household servant but many were left to the elements or the wild dogs and still others were picked up by local slave traders looking for some easy flesh. 
children were exposed maybe because they were deformed. Um, maybe the husband thought the wife was unfaithful and so the uh, child wasn't his. Uh, maybe the father divorced the mother and she decided rather than let him know that the baby was born, she would just expose the child. Now, if you put the child out of the house into a field or, you know, some uh, place outside the town, uh, you were pretty much giving the child a death sentence. We might call that infanticide. Expositio, or exposure as it was euphemistically called, was widespread in Greece and Rome. Legend has it that Rome itself was established by Romulus and Remus, two victims of exposure, who survived by being raised by wolves, of course. A surviving letter from around the year 1 BC, from a husband to his pregnant wife in Egypt, shows just how unshocking the practice was. Know that I am still in Alexandria. I ask and beg you to take good care of our baby son. And as soon as I receive payment, I shall send it up to you. If you are delivered before I come home, if it is a boy, keep it. If it is a girl, discard it. We know why Greeks and Romans practiced exposure. But what kind of society made it legal, let alone morally acceptable? Plato, for example, argued that we must dispose of surplus children. He authorized, if you like, infanticide. He doesn't say how to do it, and he's only talking theoretically. But he had high principles, and one of them was that only the best people should be born, and others are a kind of flaw in the system and should be got rid of. It comes down to how we measure an individual's value. If a person's worth depends on what they add to society, Discarding the useless makes some sense. If our worth depends on something higher, something absolute, it's a different story. And arguably, the most absolute claim about human value is that every man, woman and child is created in the Imago Dei, the image of God. The concept of the image of God goes right back to Egyptian times. Pharaohs ruled on behalf of the gods like a son represents a father. Someone like Ramses II was hailed as the very image of God. He was one of the longest reigning kings of Egyptian history, a famed military commander and prolific builder. He was a big deal. A monument like this, all seven tons of it, was far more than political propaganda. It was almost religion. It was thought to embody not just the presence of the Pharaoh, but of the gods. So a statue like this was declared the image of God, worthy of reverence and love. But there was another way of thinking about this. The people of Israel, Jesus' homeland, used the expression in a way that would have puzzled most ancient cultures. The Israelites took this idea and completely universalized or democratized it. They said that everyone, regardless of wealth or status, was a child of God, made in the very image of God. Then God said, let us create mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God. He created them male 
and female, he created them. God blessed them. It's perhaps the most radical thing that the biblical literature has to say because it fundamentally puts every human being on the same level. So that whichever way you organize society, the fundamental ethos is going to be egalitarian. For Jews and Christians, every human being enjoyed equal and immeasurable worth. This had nothing to do with the contribution a person could make to society and everything to do with the love of the Creator. Just as a child bears the family resemblance, so every man and woman is made in the image of God. Whether rich or poor, powerful or weak, moral or immoral, everyone is a child of the Creator, made for Him, loved by Him. It's a unique idea and it changes everything. I think probably the most important identifiable, recognizable thing that people can be grateful for Christianity is when they look in the mirror in the morning. What are you seeing there? It is by no means self-evident. You don't have a barcode on you that tells you how much you're worth. You don't have a barcode on you that tells you anything about your intrinsic identity. The idea of who the human is, a someone rather than a something, a someone irrespective of the fact they may not be able to afford a mirror to look into in the morning. They are not self-evident ideas. And it was the incursion of Christianity into what we call now the classical world that brought about ideas that in engaging with human beings, you are in some way engaging with a bit of God, with an image of God. If you happen to think that every human life is infinitely valuable, regardless of capacity or usefulness, that human rights are innate, then you've been influenced by the Bible's teaching about the image of God. Right, some interesting stuff in there. The whole image of God was a really key theme in Jesus' teachings, even though it's not recorded that he ever used that phrase. But Jesus recognised the value of everyone that he met. He treated every person with dignity and respect that they deserved. He sought out the lonely, the least, the last, and the lost. Those that society shunned, he reminded them of their worth in the eyes of God. And he taught his followers to do the same. So the first followers literally practiced what Jesus preached. They took the belief that everyone had value, that everyone was made in the image of God, and they confronted the worst aspects of their society. And so you've already heard on that video how Christians um, push back on that Roman practice of exposure and how helpless babies were abandoned and left to die, and Christians did something about that. Well, Christians were also at the forefront of setting up hospitals and centres for health care, schools and charities for those that society pushed to the edges. And one of the most significant areas that Christians had an impact on was in the area of slavery. So throughout history, slaves have always been a marginal group on the edge of society. And, and for us now, in our, I suppose, modern Western world, we, we sort of think of the idea of one human owning another human as just, as just horrible. But in the ancient world, it was an accepted part of everyday life. But those early Christians pushed back on that ownership and the abuse of people because they believed that if every person was created in the image of God, that included slaves. 
and therefore slaves should be treated well, with respect. So that's why the, the New Testament gives some advice uh, around slave owners to be just and fair to their slaves, and there's some, some other references too, but Christians contended for more than just good treatment. Because of the common humanity, because of that dignity and the worth of every slave, they were far more than just, uh, they were more important than their social status. So, for example, the Apostle Paul, he <clears throat> wrote a letter to one of his friends called Philemon, and he appealed to Philemon to forgive and restore a runaway slave, a guy called Onesimus. And Paul argued that Onesimus was actually, first and foremost, a Christian brother before he was a slave. This is what he put. He said, he, that's Onesimus, is no longer like a slave to you. He is more than a slave, for he is a beloved brother. <coughs> so if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. This was a really radical idea in the ancient world. This was an upending of the social status and the fabric, and it was fueled by Jesus' teaching that everyone was made in the image of God. So, so by the second century, wealthy Christians were encouraged to use their money for noble purposes. Instead of expanding their fields or renovating their villas or getting that luxury chariot or going on a Mediterranean cruise, <clears throat> Christians were encouraged to buy slaves that they knew were being abused and exploited, bring them into their own home and treat them like family. In the year 428, uh, a guy called Augustine was the Christian bishop of the North African city of Hippo. And he heard about a, a shipment of slaves that were waiting down at the city docks to be taken and sold across the Mediterranean. And so Augustine saw this as an opportunity for the local Christians to intervene, to, to make a difference. So he mobilized his church, and they marched on down to the port, and they bargained with the slave traders, and this is what happens next. Immediately, 120 people, 120 slaves, were liberated by our members. Hardly anyone could keep back tears upon hearing the stories about how they were kidnapped and taken from their families before being handed over to the slave traders. You know, at the time, the Greek and the Romans thought that their Christian neighbours were weird. They were just wasting their time and their money to help these lowly slaves, but for the Christians, it was part of a much bigger picture. They recognized that every person, even a slave, was created in the image of God, and therefore they were worthy of dignity and respect and value. Now, sadly, it is true that Christians were unable to uh, overthrow that institution of slavery for hundreds of years later. But it's also true that in ancient times, Christians were the only people who were pushing back on that oppression and that injustice. And I suppose what they essentially did is they lit a very, very long fuse, which eventually would explode in the, the 19th century because they believed in the worth of every human being. A slavery <coughs> is, is not over, and it's still being continued to be fought against by a number of Christian groups that are fighting against modern-day human trafficking. Groups like Tear Fund... A21 campaign, Hagar and World Vision are doing a great work and if you have some time, some moments to kind of look and see and support what they're doing, it'll be really helpful. So, so Christian efforts against slavery were really just one of the many impacts that this idea of the Amajo Day had in our world. 
But I think it's important to not just necessarily look back, but also to look forward and see how the image of God influences us now and also for the future. So I just quick a final video clip before I draw together some threads. Thanks, Jace. are today to this deep-rooted assumption that people matter all people regardless of status regardless of capacity of course you don't have to believe in God in order to treat people this way and naturally everyone loves their own grandma but what about the person who has no one for a long time the worth of those on the margins the child with a disability the person with a dementia has been safeguarded by this notion that there's something divine about even the most broken or powerless person. There's something really beautiful about that, about showing care and respect to someone who hasn't done anything to earn it, who isn't successful or powerful by the world's standards, who might not even know you're there. It's always worth attending to the way in which we engage with those who are at the periphery or perhaps at the weakest point of our society, those who are not able to defend themselves or articulate their own worth. The 19th century philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche spooked Western culture by accurately describing what Christianity had contributed to it and what the world without it would, according to him, should look like. Christianity has taken the side of everything weak, base, ill-constituted. Christianity is called the religion of compassion. One loses force when one has compassion. Compassion on the whole thwarts the law of evolution, which is the law of selection. It preserves that which is ripe for destruction. It defends life's disinherited and condemned in every noble morality, it counts as weakness. Nothing in our unhealthy modernity is more unhealthy than Christian compassion. We shrink from Nietzsche's conclusions, rightly, I think. But history tells us that reaction isn't guaranteed. It seems to me where the, the difficulty arises for such a secular account is when we acknowledge that people who are not capable of rational agency, when we acknowledge that such people still have rights and that we've still got obligations towards them, since they're not capable of rational agency. So I think it's, it's the marginal human beings, the truly marginal, those who are in a long-term coma, those who are suffering from Alzheimer's, the infant who was severely impaired from, from birth and so forth, it's, it's those marginal human beings who I think constitute the great challenge. I do believe personally it's quite difficult to sustain a kind of absolute doctrine of human rights in the long run unless there's some notion that human beings relate to something more than just other human beings' desires and, and opinions. The religious perspective says every human being relates from the word go to another order, another reality, which is the divine, the sacred. Everyone is, so to speak, plugged into that network. Whatever a society may do, whatever an individual may think, that relationship with the depth of reality is there. Now, 
It may or may not be true that you can carry on pragmatically believing in human rights without that, but it's a very, very robust anchorage for human rights if you do think that. And I'm not too optimistic about it surviving indefinitely without something like that. You know, um, Nietzsche has a pretty frightening position, doesn't he? But I think his attitude lies beneath a whole lot of the violence and abuse and, and um, oppression that we've seen through history. You know, some of those atrocities of the past happened because people ignored the image of God in others. And I think if we're not careful, that foundational belief that all people are inherent of worth and dignity can easily be eroded in our society. So that's where Christians have a really important part to play. We can stand on the shoulders of those men and women who have gone before and, and follow in the footsteps of faithful Christians and, and of Jesus himself and uphold the value of every person uh, that we meet. So here's my challenge for you this morning. If you're up for it, yes, you're good. Okay, great, excellent. All right, so my challenge for you this morning is this week to make an effort to recognize and celebrate the image of God in one person that crosses your path every day. Okay, so seven days this week, seven people. Don't save them all up till Saturday, otherwise you'll be running around trying to find seven people. But I, I think that if we can celebrate the worth and the value of someone, not because of what they can do for us, not even necessarily because of who they are or their status, but, but of the fact that they are created in the image of God. And so what that might look like for you to celebrate and recognize that, it might just simply be taking the time to talk, listen to their story. Maybe it's buying them a coffee, writing them a note of affirmation, maybe baking a cake or, or dropping off some food. Just very simple and sincere ways that you can show that you value that person, that you are playing the tune of Jesus. And can you imagine what would happen if every Christian recognized and celebrated the image of God in others? What a difference that would make in our world. You know, we'd actually be doing more than just playing the tune <clears throat> that Jesus composed. We would, be, we would be creating the symphony which he had in mind. Let's pray as we finish. God, it is a mind-blowing concept that you would create people in, in your image to reflect your values and your virtues. And, and we confess that we are not always the best at that. You know, Christianity has a patchy track record. There's been much good, but there's also been much bad. But you've given us the opportunity to, to turn that tide, to push back on some of the worst in our society and, and recognize the image of God in, in everyone that we meet. So we pray this week uh, that we would celebrate the worth of every person we know, that we would play the tune that our composer intended for his name's sake and his